Law 12. Use selective honesty and generosity to disarm your victim. Judgment. One sincere and honest move will cover over dozens of dishonest ones. Open hearted gestures of honesty and generosity bring down the guard of even the most suspicious people. Once your selective honesty opens a hole in their armor, you can deceive and manipulate them at will. A timely gift, a Trojan horse, will serve the same purpose. Observance of the Law Sometime in 1926, a tall, dapperly dressed man paid a visit to Al Capone, the most feared gangster of his time. Speaking with an elegant continental accent, the man introduced himself as Count Victor Lustig. He promised that if Capone gave him $50,000, he could double it. Capone had more than enough funds to cover the investment, but he wasn't in the habit of entrusting large sums to total strangers. He looked the Count over. Something about the man was different his classy style, his manner, And so Capone decided to play along. He counted out the bills personally and handed them to Lustig. Okay, Count, said Capone. Double it in sixty days, like he said. Lustig left with the money, put it in a safe deposit box in Chicago, then headed to New York, where he had several other money making schemes in progress. The fifty thousand dollars remained in the bank box untouched. Lustig made no effort to double it. Two months later, he returned to Chicago, took the money from the box, and paid Capone another visit. He looked at the gangster's stony faced bodyguards, smiled apologetically, and said, Please accept my profound regrets, Mr. Capone. I'm sorry to report that the plan failed. I failed. Capone slowly stood up. He glowered at Lustig. Debating which part of the river to throw him in, but the Count reached into his coat pocket, withdrew the fifty thousand dollars, and placed it on the desk. Here, sir, is your money, to the penny. Again, my sincere apologies. This is most embarrassing. Things didn't work out the way I thought they would. I would have loved to have doubled your money for you and for myself. Lord knows I need it, but the plan just didn't materialize. Capone sagged back into his chair, confused. I know you're a con man, Count, said Capone. I knew it the moment you walked in here. I expected either $100,000 or nothing. But this, getting my money back, well. Again, my apologies, Mr. Capone, said Lustig, as he picked up his hat and began to leave. My God, you're honest, yelled Capone. If you're on the spot, here's five to help you along. He counted out five $1,000 bills out of the $50,000. The Count seemed stunned, bowed deeply, mumbled his thanks, and left, taking the money. The $5,000 was what Lustig had been after all along. Interpretation Count Victor Lustig, a man who spoke several languages and prided himself on his refinement and culture. Was one of the great con artists of modern times. He was known for his audacity, his fearlessness, and, most important, his knowledge of human psychology. He could size up a man in minutes, discovering his weaknesses 
and he had radar for suckers. Lustig knew that most men build up defenses against crooks and other troublemakers. The con artist's job is to bring those defenses down. One sure way to do this is through an act of apparent sincerity and honesty. Who will distrust a person literally caught in the act of being honest? Lustig used selective honesty many times, but with Capone, he went a step further. No normal con man would have dared such a con. He would have chosen his suckers for their meekness, for that look about them that says they will take their medicine without complaint. Con Capone, and you would spend the rest of your life, whatever remained of it, afraid. But Lustig understood that a man like Capone spends his life mistrusting others. No one around him is honest or generous, and being so much in the company of wolves is exhausting, even depressing. A man like Capone yearns to be the recipient of an honest or generous gesture, to feel that not everyone has an angle or is out to rob him. Lustig's act of selective honesty disarmed Capone because it was so unexpected. A con artist loves conflicting emotions like these since the person caught up in them is so easily distracted and deceived. Do not shy away from practicing this law on the Capones of the world. With a well-timed gesture of honesty or generosity, you will have the most brutal and cynical beast in the kingdom eating out of your hand. Keys to Power The essence of deception is distraction. Distracting the people you want to deceive gives you the time and space to do something they won't notice. An act of kindness, generosity, or honesty is the most powerful form of distraction because it disarms other people's suspicions. It turns them into children, eagerly lapping up any kind of affectionate gesture. In ancient China, this was called giving before you take. The giving makes it hard for the other person to notice the taking. It is a device with infinite practical uses. Brazenly taking something from someone is dangerous, even for the powerful. The victim will plot revenge. It is also dangerous simply to ask for what you need, no matter how politely. Unless the other person sees some gain for themselves, they may come to resent your neediness. Learn to give before you take. It softens the ground, takes the bite out of a future request, or simply creates a distraction. And the giving can take many forms. An actual gift, a generous act, a kind favor, an honest admission, whatever it takes. Selective honesty is best employed on your first encounter with someone. We are all creatures of habit, and our first impressions last a long time. If someone believes you are honest at the start of your relationship, it takes a lot to convince them otherwise. This gives you room to maneuver. A single act of honesty is often not enough. What is required is a reputation for honesty built on a series of acts. But these can be quite inconsequential. Once this reputation is established, as with first impression, it is hard to shake. Selective kindness should also be part of your arsenal of deception. Selective kindness will often break down even the most stubborn foe. Aiming right for the heart, it corrodes the will to fight back. Remember, 
By playing on people's emotions, calculated acts of kindness can turn a capone into a gullible child. As with any emotional approach, the tactic must be practiced with caution. If people see through it, their disappointed feelings of gratitude and warmth will become the most violent hatred and distrust. Unless you can make the gesture seem sincere and heartfelt, do not play with fire. Law 13. When asking for help, appeal to people's self-interest, never to their mercy or gratitude. Judgment. If you need to turn to an ally for help, do not bother to remind him of your past assistance and good deeds. He will find a way to ignore you. Instead, uncover something in your request or in your alliance with him that will benefit him and emphasize it out of all proportion. He will respond enthusiastically when he sees something to be gained for himself. Observance of the Law In 433 B.C., just before the Peloponnesian War, the island of Corsira, later called Corfu, and the Greek city-state of Corinth stood on the brink of conflict. Both sides sent ambassadors to Athens to try to win over the Athenians to their side. The stakes were high, since whoever had Athens on his side was sure to win and whoever won the war would certainly give the defeated side no mercy. Corsira spoke first. Its ambassador began by admitting that the island had never helped Athens before and, in fact, had allied itself with Athens' enemies. There were no ties of friendship or gratitude between Corsira and Athens. Yes, the ambassador admitted, he had come to Athens now out of fear, and concern for Corsira's safety. The only thing he could offer was an alliance of mutual interests. Corsira had a navy only surpassed in size and strength by Athens' own. An alliance between the two states would create a formidable force, one that could intimidate the rival state of Sparta. That, unfortunately, was all Corsira had to offer. The representative from Corinth then gave a brilliant, passionate speech in sharp contrast to the dry, colorless approach of the Corsiran. He talked of everything Corinth had done for Athens in the past. He asked how it would look to Athens' other allies if the city put an agreement with a former enemy over one with a present friend, one that had served Athens' interest loyally. Perhaps those allies would break their agreements with Athens if they saw that their loyalty was not valued. He referred to Hellenic law and the need to repay Corinth for all its good deeds. He finally went on to list the many services Corinth had performed for Athens and the importance of showing gratitude to one's friends. After the speech, the Athenians debated the issue in an assembly. On the second round, they voted overwhelmingly to ally with Corsira and drop Corinth. Interpretation History has remembered the Athenians nobly, but they were the preeminent realists of classical Greece. With them, all the rhetoric, all the emotional appeals in the world could not match a good pragmatic argument, especially one that added to their power. 
What the Corinthian ambassador did not realize was that his references to Corinth's past generosity to Athens only irritated the Athenians, subtly asking them to feel guilty and putting them under obligation. The Athenians could care less about past favors and friendly feelings. At the same time, they knew that if their other allies thought them ungrateful for abandoning Corinth, these city-states would still be unlikely to break their ties to Athens, the preeminent power in Greece. Athens ruled its empire by force and would simply compel any rebellious ally to return to the fold. When people choose between talk about the past and talk about the future, a pragmatic person will always opt for the future and forget the past. As the Corsairans realized, it is always best to speak pragmatically to a pragmatic person. And in the end, most people are, in fact, pragmatic. They will rarely act against their own self-interest. Keys to Power In your quest for power, you will constantly find yourself in the position of asking for help from those more powerful than you. There is an art to asking for help, an art that depends on your ability to understand the person you are dealing with and to not confuse your needs with theirs. Most people never succeed at this because they are completely trapped in their own wants and desires. They start from the assumption that the people they are appealing to have a selfless interest in helping them. They talk as if their needs mattered to these people, who probably couldn't care less. Sometimes they refer to larger issues, a great cause, or grand emotions such as love and gratitude. They go for the big picture when simple, everyday realities would have much more appeal. What they do not realize is that even the most powerful person is locked inside needs of his own, and that if you make no appeal to his self-interest, he merely sees you as desperate or, at best, a waste of time. A key step in the process is to understand the other person's psychology. Is he vain? Is he concerned about his reputation or his social standing? Does he have enemies you could help him vanquish? Is he simply motivated by money and power? When the Mongols invaded China in the 12th century, they threatened to obliterate a culture that had thrived for over 2,000 years. Their leader, Genghis Khan, saw nothing in China but a country that lacked pasturing for his horses, and he decided to destroy the place leveling all its cities, for it would be better to exterminate the Chinese and let the grass grow. It was not a soldier, a general, or a king who saved the Chinese from devastation, but a man named Yelu Chutsai. A foreigner himself, Chutsai had come to appreciate the superiority of Chinese culture. He managed to make himself a trusted advisor to Genghis Khan and persuaded him that he would reap riches out of the place if instead of destroying it, he simply taxed everyone who lived there. Khan saw the wisdom in this and did as Chutsai advised. When Khan took the city of Kaifeng after a long siege and decided to massacre its inhabitants, as he had in other cities that had resisted him, Chutsai told him that the finest craftsmen and engineers in China had fled to Kaifeng, and it would be better to put them to use. Kaifeng was spared. Never before 
had Genghis Khan shown such mercy, but then it really wasn't mercy that saved Kai Feng. Chu Tsai knew Khan well. He was a barbaric peasant who cared nothing for culture or indeed for anything other than warfare and practical results. Chu Tsai chose to appeal to the only emotion that would work on such a man, greed. Self-interest is the lever that will move people. Once you make them see how you can in some way meet their needs or advance their cause, their resistance to your requests for help will magically fall away. At each step on the way to acquiring power, you must train yourself to think your way inside the other person's mind, to see their needs and interests, to get rid of the screen of your own feelings that obscure the truth. Master this art, and there will be no limits to what you can accomplish. Law 14. Pose as a friend, work as a spy. Judgment. Knowing about your rival is critical. Use spies to gather valuable information that will keep you a step ahead. Better still, play the spy yourself. In polite social encounters, learn to probe. Ask indirect questions to get people to reveal their weaknesses and intentions. There is no occasion that is not an opportunity for artful spying. Observance of the Law Joseph Devine was undoubtedly the greatest art dealer of his time. From 1904 to 1940, he almost single-handedly monopolized America's millionaire art-collecting market. But one prize plum eluded him, the industrialist Andrew Mellon. Before he died, Duvine was determined to make Mellon a client. Duvine's friends said this was an impossible dream. Mellon was a stiff, taciturn man. The stories he had heard about the congenial, talkative Duveen rubbed him the wrong way. He had made it clear he had no desire to meet the man. Yet, Duveen told his doubting friends, Not only will Mellon buy from me, but he will buy only from me. For several years, he tracked his prey, learning the man's habits, tastes, phobias. To do this, he secretly put several of Mellon's staff on his own payroll, worming valuable information out of them. By the time he moved into action, he knew Mellon about as well as Mellon's wife did. In 1921, Mellon was visiting London and staying in a palatial suite on the third floor of Claridge's Hotel. Duveen booked himself into the suite just below Mellon's on the second floor. He had arranged for his valet to befriend Mellon's valet, and on the fateful day he had chosen to make his move, Mellon's valet told Duveen's valet, who told Duveen, that he had just helped Mellon on with his overcoat and that the industrialist was making his way down the corridor to ring for the lift. Duveen's valet hurriedly helped Duveen with his own overcoat. Seconds later, Duveen entered the lift and, lo and behold, there was Mellon. How do you do, Mr. Mellon? said Duveen, introducing himself. I am on my way to the National Gallery to look at some pictures. How uncanny! That was precisely where Mellon was headed. And so Devine was able to accompany his prey to the one location that would ensure his success. 
He knew Mellon's taste, inside and out, and while the two men wandered through the museum, he dazzled the magnate with his knowledge. Once again, quite uncannily, they seemed to have remarkably similar tastes. Mellon was pleasantly surprised. This wasn't the Duveen he had expected. The man was charming and agreeable, and clearly had exquisite taste. When they returned to New York, Mellon visited Duveen's exclusive gallery and fell in love with the collection. Everything, surprisingly enough, seemed to be precisely the kind of work he wanted to collect. For the rest of his life, he was Duveen's best and most generous client. Interpretation A man as ambitious and competitive as Joseph Duveen left nothing to chance. What's the point of winging it? or just hoping you may be able to charm this or that client. It's like shooting ducks blindfolded. Arm yourself with a little knowledge and your aim improves. Mellon was the most spectacular of Duveen's catches, but he spied on many a millionaire. By secretly putting members of his client's household staffs on his own payroll, he would gain constant access to valuable information about their master's comings and goings changes in taste, and other such tidbits of information that would put him a step ahead. A rival of Duveen's, who wanted to make Henry Frick a client, noticed that whenever he visited this wealthy New Yorker, Duveen was there before him, as if he had a sixth sense. To other dealers, Duveen seemed to be everywhere and to know everything before they did. His powers discouraged and disheartened them, until many simply gave up going after the wealthy clients who could make a dealer rich. Such is the power of artful spying. It makes you seem all-powerful, clairvoyant. Your knowledge of your mark can also make you seem charming. So well can you anticipate their desires. No one sees the source of your power, and what they cannot see, they cannot fight. Keys to Power in the realm of power, your goal is a degree of control over future events. Part of the problem you face, then, is that people won't tell you all their thoughts, emotions, and plans. Carefully controlling what they say, they keep the most critical parts of their character hidden, their weaknesses, ulterior motives, obsessions. The result is that you cannot predict their moves and are constantly in the dark. The trick is to find a way to probe them to find out their secrets and hidden intentions without letting them know what you are up to. This is not as difficult as you might think. A friendly front will let you secretly gather information on friends and enemies alike. Let others consult the horoscope or read tarot cards. You have more concrete means of seeing into the future. The most common way of spying is to use other people, as Duveen did. The method is simple, powerful, but risky. You will certainly gather information, but you have little control over the people who are doing the work. Perhaps they will ineptly reveal your spying or even secretly turn against you. It is far better to be the spy yourself, to pose as a friend while secretly gathering information. During social gatherings and innocuous encounters, pay attention. This is when people's guards are down. By suppressing your own personality, you can make them reveal things. 
The brilliance of the maneuver is that they will mistake your interest in them for friendship, so that you not only learn, you make allies. Nevertheless, you should practice this tactic with caution and care. If people begin to suspect you are worming secrets out of them under the cover of conversation, they will strictly avoid you. Emphasize friendly chatter, not valuable information. Your search for gems of information cannot be too obvious, or your probing questions will reveal more about yourself and your intentions than about the information you hope to find. A trick to try in spying comes from La Rochefoucauld, who wrote, Sincerity is found in very few men, and is often the cleverest of ruses. One is sincere in order to draw out the confidence and secrets of the other. By pretending to bear your heart to another person, in other words, you make them more likely to reveal their own secrets. Give them a false confession, and they will give you a real one. Another trick was identified by the philosopher Arthur Schopenhauer, who suggested vehemently contradicting people you're in conversation with as a way of irritating them, stirring them up so that they lose some of the control over their words. In their emotional reaction, they will reveal all kinds of truths about themselves, truths you can later use against them. Another method of indirect spying is to test people, to lay little traps that make them reveal things about themselves. Kasroes II, a notoriously clever 7th century king of the Persians, had many ways of seeing through his subjects without raising suspicion. If he noticed, for instance, that two of his courtiers had become particularly friendly, he would call one of them aside and say he had information that the other was a traitor and would soon be killed. The king would tell the courtier he trusted him more than anyone and that he must keep this information secret. Then he would watch the two men carefully. If he saw that the second courtier had not changed in his behavior toward the king, he would conclude that the first courtier had kept the secret, and he would quickly promote the man, later taking him aside to confess, I meant to kill your friend because of certain information that had reached me, but when I investigated the matter, I found it was untrue. If, on the other hand, the second courtier started to avoid the king, acting aloof and tense, Kosroes would know that the secret had been revealed. He would ban the second courtier from his court, letting him know that the whole business had only been a test, but that even though the man had done nothing wrong, he could no longer trust him. The first courtier, however, had revealed the secret, and him Kosroes would ban from his entire kingdom. It may seem an odd form of spying that reveals not empirical information, but a person's character. Often, however, it is the best way of solving problems before they arise. By tempting people into certain acts, you learn about their loyalty, their honesty, and so on. And this kind of knowledge is often the most valuable of all. Armed with it, you can predict their actions in the future. Law 15. Crush your enemy totally. Judgment. All great leaders since Moses have known that a feared enemy must be crushed completely. Sometimes they have learned this the hard way. If one ember is left alight, no matter how dimly it smolders, a fire will eventually break out. 
More is lost through stopping halfway than through total annihilation. The enemy will recover and will seek revenge. Crush him, not only in body, but in spirit. Transgression of the Law No rivalry between leaders is more celebrated in Chinese history than the struggle between Xiang Yu and Liu Bang. These two generals began their careers as friends, fighting on the same side. Xiang Yu came from the nobility, large and powerful, given to bouts of violence and temper, a bit dull-witted. He was yet a mighty warrior who always fought at the head of his troops. Liu Bang came from peasant stock. He had never been much of a soldier and preferred women and wine to fighting. In fact, he was something of a scoundrel. But he was wily, and he had the ability to recognize the best strategists, keeping them as his advisors, and listen to their advice. He had risen in the army through these strengths. In 208 BC, the king of Chu sent two massive armies to conquer the powerful kingdom of Qin. One army went north, under the generalship of Sang Yi, with Xiang Yu second in command. The other, led by Liu Bang, headed straight toward Qin. The target was the kingdom's splendid capital, Xianyang, and Xiang Yu ever violent and impatient, could not stand the idea that Liu Bang would get to Xianyang first and perhaps would assume command of the entire army. At one point on the northern front, Xiang's commander, Sung Yi, hesitated in sending his troops into battle. Furious, Xiang entered Sung Yi's tent, proclaimed him a traitor, cut off his head, and assumed sole command of the army. Without waiting for orders, he left the northern front and marched directly on Xi'an Yang. He felt certain he was the better soldier and general than Li Yu, but to his utter astonishment, his rival, leading a smaller, swifter army, managed to reach Xi'an Yang first. Xiang had an advisor, Fan Tseng, who warned him, this village headman, Liu Bang used to be greedy only for riches and women, but since entering the capital, he has not been led astray by wealth, wine, or sex. That shows he is aiming high. Fan Tseng urged Xiang to kill his rival before it was too late. He told the general to invite the wily peasant to a banquet at their camp outside Xianyang and, in the midst of a celebratory sword dance, to have his head cut off. The invitation was sent, Liu fell for the trap, and came to the banquet. But Xiang hesitated in ordering the sword dance, and by the time he gave the signal, Liu had sensed a trap and managed to escape. Bah! cried Fan Tseng in disgust, seeing that Xiang had botched the plot. One cannot plan with a simpleton. Liu Bang will steal your empire yet and make us all his prisoners. Realizing his mistake, Xiang hurriedly marched on Xian Yang, this time determined to hack off his rival's head. Li Yu was never one to fight when the odds were against him, and he abandoned the city. Xiang captured Xian Yang, murdered the young prince of Qin, and burned the city to the ground. Li Yu was now Xiang's bitter enemy, and he pursued him for many months, finally cornering him in a walled city. Lacking food, his army in disarray, 
Liu sued for peace. Again, Fan Sang warned Shi Yang, Crush him now. If you let him go again, you will be sorry later. But Shi Yang decided to be merciful. He wanted to bring Liu back to Chu alive and to force his former friend to acknowledge him as master. But Fan proved right. Liu managed to use the negotiations for surrender as a distraction, and he escaped with a small army. Shi Yang, amazed that he had yet again let his rivals slip away, once more set out after Liu, this time with such ferocity that he seemed to have lost his mind. A few weeks later, in the thick of the hunt, Shi Yang scattered his forces unwisely, and in a surprise attack, Liu was able to surround his main garrison. For the first time, the tables were turned. Now it was Shi Yang who sued for peace. Liu's top advisor urged him to destroy Shi Yang, crush his army, show no mercy. Making a false treaty, he lured Shi Yang into relaxing his defense, then slaughtered almost all of his army. Shi Yang managed to escape. Alone and on foot, knowing that Li Yu had put a bounty on his head, he came upon a small group of his own retreating soldiers and cried out, I hear Liu Bang has offered 1,000 pieces of gold and a fief of 10,000 families for my head. Let me do you a favor. Then he slit his own throat and died. Interpretation This is the fate that faces all of us when we sympathize with our enemies, when pity or the hope of reconciliation makes us pull back from doing away with them. We only strengthen their fear and hatred of us. We have beaten them and they are humiliated, yet we nurture these resentful vipers who will one day kill us. Power cannot be dealt with this way. It must be exterminated, crushed, and denied the chance to return to haunt us. This is all the truer with a former friend who has become an enemy. The law governing fatal antagonisms reads, Reconciliation is out of the question. Only one side can win, and it must win totally. Liu Bang learned this lesson well. After defeating Xiong Yu, this son of a farmer went on to become supreme commander of the armies of Chu. Crushing his next rival, the king of Chu, his own former leader, he crowned himself emperor, defeated everyone in his path, and went down in history as one of the greatest rulers of China, the immortal Han Gao Tzu, founder of the Han Dynasty. Keys to Power It is no accident that the story illustrating this law comes from China. Chinese history abounds with examples of enemies who were left alive and returned to haunt the lenient. Crush the enemy is a key strategic tenet of Sun Tzu, the 4th century B.C. author of The Art of War. The idea is simple. Your enemies wish you ill. There is nothing they want more than to eliminate you. If, in your struggles with them, you stop halfway or even three-quarters of the way, out of mercy or hope of reconciliation, you only make them more determined, more embittered, and they will someday take revenge. They may act friendly for the time being, but this is only because you have defeated them. They have no choice but to bide their time. The solution? Have no mercy. Crush your enemies as totally as they would crush you. 
Ultimately, the only peace and security you can hope for from your enemies is their disappearance. Law 16. Use absence to increase respect and honor. Judgment. Too much circulation makes the price go down. The more you are seen and heard from, the more common you appear. If you are already established in a group, temporary withdrawal from it will make you more talked about, even more admired. You must learn when to leave, create value through scarcity. Observance of the Law For many centuries, the Assyrians ruled Upper Asia with an iron fist. In the 8th century BC, however, the people of Medea, now northwestern Iran, revolted against them and finally broke free. Now the Medes had to establish a new government. Determined to avoid any form of despotism, they refused to give ultimate power to any one man or to establish a monarchy. Without a leader, however, the country soon fell into chaos and fractured into small kingdoms with village fighting against village. In one such village lived a man named Deoses, who began to make a name for himself for fair dealing and the ability to settle disputes. He did this so successfully, in fact, that soon any legal conflict in the area was brought to him and his power increased. Throughout the land, the law had fallen into disrepute. The judges were corrupt, and no one entrusted their cases to the courts anymore, resorting to violence instead. When news spread of Deoc's wisdom, incorruptibility, and unshakable impartiality, Medean villages far and wide turned to him to settle all manner of cases. Soon he became the sole arbiter of justice in the land. At the height of his power, Deoces suddenly decided he had had enough. He would no longer sit in the chair of judgment, would hear no more suits, settle no more disputes between brother and brother, village and village. Complaining that he was spending so much time dealing with other people's problems that he had neglected his own affairs, he retired. The country once again descended into chaos. With the sudden withdrawal of a powerful arbiter like Deoces, crime increased and contempt for the law was never greater. The Medes held a meeting of all the villages to decide how to get out of their predicament. We cannot continue to live in this country under these conditions, said one tribal leader. Let us appoint one of our number to rule so that we can live under orderly government rather than losing our homes altogether in the present chaos. And so, despite all that the Medes had suffered under the Assyrian despotism, they decided to set up a monarchy and name a king. And the man they most wanted to rule, of course, was the fair-minded Deoces. He was hard to convince, for he wanted nothing more to do with the villages' infighting and bickering. But the Medes begged and pleaded. Without him, the country had descended into a state of lawlessness. Deoces finally agreed. Yet he also imposed conditions. An enormous palace was to be constructed for him. He was to be provided with bodyguards, and a capital city was to be built from which he could rule. All of this was done, and Deoces settled into his palace. In the center of the capital, the palace was surrounded by walls, 
and completely inaccessible to ordinary people. Deoses then established the terms of his rule. Admission to his presence was forbidden. Communication with the king was only possible through messengers. No one in the royal court could see him more than once a week, and then only by permission. Deoses ruled for 53 years, extended the Median Empire, and established the foundation for what would later be the Persian Empire under his great-great-grandson Cyrus. During Deoces' reign, the people's respect for him gradually turned into a form of worship. He was not a mere mortal, they believed, but the son of a god. Interpretation Deoces was a man of great ambition. He determined early on that the country needed a strong ruler and that he was the man for the job. In a land plagued with anarchy, the most powerful man is the judge and arbiter, so Deoces began his career by making his reputation as a man of impeccable fairness. At the height of his power as a judge, however, Deoces realized the truth of the law of absence and presence. By serving so many clients, he had become too noticeable, too available, and had lost the respect he had earlier enjoyed. People were taking his services for granted. The only way to regain the veneration and power he wanted was to withdraw completely and let the Medes taste what life was like without him. As he expected, they came begging for him to rule. Once Deoces had discovered the truth of this law, he carried it to its ultimate realization. In the palace his people had built for him, none could see him except a few courtiers and those only rarely. As Herodotus wrote, there was a risk that if they saw him habitually, it might lead to jealousy and resentment, and plots would follow. But if nobody saw him, the legend would grow that he was a being of a different order from mere men. Keys to Power Everything in the world depends on absence and presence. A strong presence will draw power and attention to you. You shine more brightly than those around you. But a point is inevitably reached where too much presence creates the opposite effect. The more you are seen and heard from, the more your value degrades. You become a habit. No matter how hard you try to be different, subtly, without your knowing why, people respect you less and less. At the right moment, you must learn to withdraw yourself before they unconsciously push you away. It is a game of hide-and-seek. Another, more everyday side of this law, but one that demonstrates its truth even further, is the law of scarcity in the science of economics. By withdrawing something from the market, you create instant value. Extend the law of scarcity to your own skills. Make what you are offering the world rare and hard to find, and you instantly increase its value. There always comes a point when those in power overstay their welcome. We have grown tired of them, lost respect for them. We see them as no different from the rest of mankind, which is to say that we see them as rather worse since we inevitably compare their current status in our eyes to their former one. There is an art to knowing when to retire. If it is done right, you regain the respect you had lost and retain a part of your power. 
Make yourself too available, and the aura of power you have created around yourself will wear away. Turn the game around. Make yourself less accessible, and you increase the value of your presence. Law 17. Keep others in suspense. Cultivate an air of unpredictability. Judgment. Humans are creatures of habit with an insatiable need to see familiarity in other people's actions. Your predictability gives them a sense of control. Turn the tables. Be deliberately unpredictable. Behavior that seems to have no consistency or purpose will keep them off balance, and they will wear themselves out trying to explain your moves. Taken to an extreme, this strategy can intimidate and terrorize. Observance of the Law In May of 1972, chess champion Boris Spassky anxiously awaited his rival Bobby Fischer in Reykjavik, Iceland. The two men had been scheduled to meet for the World Championship of Chess, but Fischer had not arrived on time, and the match was on hold. Fischer had problems with the size of the prize money, problems with the way the money was to be distributed, problems with the logistics of holding the match in Iceland. He might back out at any moment. Spassky tried to be patient. His Russian bosses felt that Fischer was humiliating him and told him to walk away. But Spassky wanted this match. He knew he could destroy Fischer, and nothing was going to spoil the greatest victory of his career. So it seems that all our work may come to nothing, Spassky told a comrade. But what can we do? It is Bobby's move. If he comes, we play. If he does not come, we do not play. A man who is willing to commit suicide has the initiative. Fischer finally arrived in Reykjavik, but the problems and the threat of cancellation, continued. He disliked the hall where the match was to be fought. He criticized the lighting. He complained about the noise of the cameras. He even hated the chairs in which he and Spassky were to sit. Now the Soviet Union took the initiative and threatened to withdraw their man. The bluff apparently worked. After all the weeks of waiting, the endless and infuriating negotiations, Fischer agreed to play. Everyone was relieved. No one more than Spassky, but on the day of the official introductions, Fischer arrived very late, and on the day when the match of the century was to begin, he was late again. This time, however, the consequences would be dire. If he showed up too late, he would forfeit the first game. What was going on? Was he playing some sort of mind game, or was Bobby Fischer perhaps afraid of Boris Spassky? It seemed to the assembled Grand Masters and to Spassky that this young kid from Brooklyn had a terrible case of the jitters. At 5.09, Fisher showed up exactly one minute before the match was to be canceled. The first game of a chess tournament is critical since it sets the tone for the months to come. It is often a slow and quiet struggle, with the two players preparing themselves for the war and trying to read each other's strategies. This game was different. Fisher made a terrible move early on, perhaps the worst of his career, and when Spassky had him on the ropes, he seemed to give up. Yet Spassky knew that Fisher never gave up. 
Even when facing checkmate, he fought to the bitter end, wearing the opponent down. This time, though, he seemed resigned. Then, suddenly, he broke out a bold move that put the room in a buzz. The move shocked Spassky, but he recovered and managed to win the game. But no one could figure out what Fisher was up to. Had he lost deliberately? Or was he rattled? Unsettled? Even as some thought, insane? After his defeat in the first game, Fisher complained all the more loudly about the room, the cameras, and everything else. He also failed to show up on time for the second game. This time, the organizers had had enough. He was given a forfeit. Now he was down two games to none, a position from which no one had ever come back to win a chess championship. Fisher was clearly unhinged. Yet, in the third game, as all those who witnessed it remember, he had a ferocious look in his eye, a look that clearly bothered Spassky. And despite the hole he had dug for himself, he seemed supremely confident. He did make what appeared to be another blunder, as he had in the first game, but his cocky air made Spassky smell a trap. Yet, despite the Russian's suspicions, he could not figure out the trap, and before he knew it, Fisher had checkmated him. In fact, Fisher's unorthodox tactics had completely unnerved his opponent. At the end of the game, Fisher leaped up and rushed out, yelling to his confederates as he smashed a fist into his palm. I am crushing him with brute force. In the next games, Fisher pulled moves that no one had seen from him before, moves that were not his style. Now Spassky started to make blunders. After losing the sixth game, he started to cry. One grandmaster said, After this, Spassky's got to ask himself if it's safe to go back to Russia. After the eighth game, Spassky decided he knew what was happening. Bobby Fisher was hypnotizing him. He decided not to look Fisher in the eye. He lost anyway. After the fourteenth game, he called a staff conference and announced, an attempt is being made to control my mind. He wondered whether the orange juice they drank at the chess table could have been drugged. Maybe chemicals were being blown into the air. Finally, Spassky went public, accusing the Fisher team of putting something in the chairs that was altering Spassky's mind. The KGB went on alert. Boris Spassky was embarrassing the Soviet Union. The chairs were taken apart and x-rayed. A chemist found nothing unusual in them. The only things anyone found anywhere, in fact, were two dead flies in the lighting fixture. Spassky began to complain of hallucinations. He tried to keep playing, but his mind was unraveling. He could not go on. On September 2nd, he resigned. Although still relatively young, he never recovered from this defeat. Interpretation In previous games between Fisher and Spassky, Fisher had not fared well. Spassky had an uncanny ability to read his opponent's strategy and use it against him. Adaptable and patient, he would build attacks that would defeat not in seven moves, but in seventy. He defeated Fisher every time they played, because he saw much further ahead, and because he was a brilliant psychologist who never lost control. One master said, he doesn't just look for the best move, he looks for the move that will disturb the man he is playing. Fisher, however, finally understood that this was one of the keys to Spassky's success. He played on your predictability. 
defeated you at your own game. Everything Fisher did for the championship match was an attempt to put the initiative on his side and to keep Spassky off balance. Clearly, the endless waiting had an effect on Spassky's psyche. Most powerful of all, though, were Fisher's deliberate blunders and his appearance of having no clear strategy. In fact, he was doing everything he could to scramble his old patterns, even if it meant losing the first match and forfeiting the second. Spassky was known for his sang-froid and level-headedness, but for the first time in his life, he could not figure out his opponent. He slowly melted down, until at the end, he was the one who seemed insane. Chess contains the concentrated essence of life. First, because to win, you have to be supremely patient and far-seeing. And second, because the game is built on patterns, whole sequences of moves that have been played before and will be played again with slight alterations in any one match. Your opponent analyzes the patterns you are playing and uses them to try to foresee your moves. Allowing him nothing predictable to base his strategy on gives you a big advantage. In chess, as in life, when people cannot figure out what you are doing, they are kept in a state of terror, waiting, uncertain, confused. Keys to Power Nothing is more terrifying than the sudden and unpredictable. That is why we are so frightened by earthquakes and tornadoes. We do not know when they will strike. After one has occurred, we wait in terror for the next one. To a lesser degree, this is the effect that unpredictable human behavior has on us. Animals behave in set patterns, which is why we are able to hunt and kill them. Only man has the capacity consciously to alter his behavior, to improvise and overcome the weight of routine and habit. Yet, most men do not realize this power. They prefer the comforts of routine, of giving in to the animal nature that has them repeating the same compulsive actions time and time again. They do this because it requires no effort, and because they mistakenly believe that if they do not unsettle others, they will be left alone. Understand, a person of power instills a kind of fear by deliberately unsettling those around him to keep the initiative on his side. You sometimes need to strike without warning to make others tremble when they least expect it. It is a device that the powerful have used for centuries. Unpredictability is most often the tactic of the master, but the underdog, too, can use it to great effect. If you find yourself outnumbered or cornered, throw in a series of unpredictable moves. Your enemies will be so confused that they will pull back or make a tactical blunder. People are always trying to read the motives behind your actions and to use your predictability against you. Throw in a completely inexplicable move and you put them on the defensive. Because they do not understand you, they are unnerved, and in such a state you can easily intimidate them. Unpredictability is not only a weapon of terror, Scrambling your patterns on a day-to-day -day basis will cause a stir around you and stimulate interest. People will talk about you, ascribe motives and explanations that have nothing to do with the truth, but that keep you constantly in their minds. In the end, the more capricious you appear, the more respect you will garner. Only the terminally subordinate act in a predictable manner.
Law 18. Do not build fortresses to protect yourself. Isolation is dangerous. Judgment. The world is dangerous and enemies are everywhere. Everyone has to protect themselves. A fortress seems the safest, but isolation exposes you to more dangers than it protects you from. It cuts you off from valuable information. It makes you conspicuous and an easy target. Better to circulate among people, find allies, mingle. You are shielded from your enemies by the crowd. Transgression of the Law Qin Shi Huangdi, the first emperor of China in 221 to 210 BC, was the mightiest man of his day. His empire was vaster and more powerful than that of Alexander the Great. He had conquered all of the kingdoms surrounding his own kingdom of Qin and unified them into one massive realm called China. But in the last years of his life, few, if anyone, saw him. The emperor lived in the most magnificent palace built to that date, in the capital of Xianyang. The palace had 270 pavilions. All of these were connected by secret underground passageways, allowing the emperor to move through the palace without anyone seeing him. He slept in a different room every night, and anyone who inadvertently laid eyes on him was instantly beheaded. Only a handful of men knew his whereabouts, and if they revealed it to anyone, they too were put to death. The first emperor had grown so terrified of human contact that when he had to leave the palace, he traveled incognito, disguising himself carefully. On one such trip through the provinces, he suddenly died. His body was borne back to the capital in the emperor's carriage, with a cart packed with salted fish trailing behind it to cover up the smell of the rotting corpse. No one was to know of his death. He died alone, far from his wives, his family, his friends, and his courtiers, accompanied only by a minister and a handful of eunuchs. Interpretation Shi Huangdi started off as the king of Qin, a fearless warrior of unbridled ambition. Writers of the time described him as a man with a waspish nose, eyes like slits, the voice of a jackal, and the heart of a tiger or wolf. He could be merciful sometimes, but more often he swallowed men up without a scruple. It was through trickery and violence that he conquered the provinces surrounding his own and created China, forging a single nation and culture out of many. As part of this process of unification, however, the first emperor outlawed the writings and teachings of Confucius, the philosopher whose ideas on the moral life had already become virtually a religion in Chinese culture. On Shi Huangdi's order, thousands of books relating to Confucius were burned, and anyone who quoted Confucius was to be beheaded. This made many enemies for the emperor, and he grew constantly afraid, even paranoid. The executions mounted. A contemporary, the writer Han Fei Tzu, noted that Qin has been victorious for four generations, yet has lived in constant terror and apprehension of destruction. As the emperor withdrew deeper and deeper into the palace to protect himself, he slowly lost control of the realm. Eunuchs and ministers enacted political policies without his approval 
or even his knowledge. They also plotted against him. By the end, he was emperor in name only and was so isolated that barely anyone knew he had died. He had probably been poisoned by the same scheming ministers who encouraged his isolation. That is what isolation brings. Retreat into a fortress and you lose contact with the sources of your power. You lose your ear for what is happening around you, as well as a sense of proportion. Instead of being safer, you cut yourself off from the kind of knowledge on which your life depends. Never enclose yourself so far from the streets that you cannot hear what is happening around you, including the plots against you. Keys to Power Machiavelli makes the argument that in a strictly military sense, a fortress is invariably a mistake. It becomes a symbol of power's isolation and is an easy target for its builder's enemies. Designed to defend you, fortresses actually cut you off from help and cut into your flexibility. They may appear impregnable, but once you retire to one, everyone knows where you are, and a siege does not have to succeed to turn your fortress into a prison. The danger for most people comes when they feel threatened. In such times, they tend to retreat and close ranks to find security in a kind of fortress. In doing so, however, they come to rely for information on a smaller and smaller circle and lose perspective on events around them. They lose maneuverability and become easy targets, and their isolation makes them paranoid. As in warfare and most games of strategy, isolation often precedes defeat and death. In moments of uncertainty and danger, you need to fight this desire to turn inward. Instead, make yourself more accessible, seek out old allies and make new ones, force yourself into more and more different circles. This has been the trick of powerful people for centuries. Finally, since power is a human creation, it is inevitably increased by contact with other people. Instead of falling into the fortress mentality, view the world in the following manner. It is like a vast palace with every room communicating with another. You need to be permeable, able to float in and out of different circles and mix with different types. That kind of mobility and social contact will protect you from plotters who will be unable to keep secrets from you and from your enemies, who will be unable to isolate you from your allies. Always on the move, you mix and mingle in the rooms of the palace, never sitting or settling in one place. No hunter can fix his aim on such a swift-moving creature. Law 19. Know who you are dealing with. Do not offend the wrong person. Judgment. There are many different kinds of people in the world, and you can never assume that everyone will react to your strategies in the same way. Deceive or outmaneuver some people, and they will spend the rest of their lives seeking revenge. They are wolves in lamb's clothing. Choose your victims and opponents carefully, then. Never offend or deceive the wrong person. Opponents, suckers, and victims. Preliminary topology. In your rise to power, 
you will come across many breeds of opponent, sucker, and victim. The highest form of the art of power is the ability to distinguish the wolves from the lambs, the foxes from the hares, the hawks from the vultures. If you make this distinction well, you will succeed without needing to coerce anyone too much. But if you deal blindly with whomever crosses your path, you will have a life of constant sorrow, if you even live that long. Being able to recognize types of people and to act accordingly is critical. The following are the five most dangerous and difficult types of mark in the jungle, as identified by artists Khan and otherwise of the past. The arrogant and proud man. Although he may initially disguise it, this man's touchy pride makes him very dangerous. Any perceived slight will lead to a vengeance of overwhelming violence. You may say to yourself, but I only said such and such at a party where everyone was drunk. It does not matter. There is no sanity behind his overreaction, so do not waste time trying to figure him out. If, at any point in your dealings with a person, you sense an oversensitive and overactive pride, flee. Whatever you are hoping for from him isn't worth it. The Hopelessly Insecure Man This man is related to the proud and arrogant type, but is less violent and harder to spot. His ego is fragile, his sense of self insecure, and if he feels himself deceived or attacked, the hurt will simmer. He will attack you in bites that will take forever to get big enough for you to notice. If you find you have deceived or harmed such a man, disappear for a long time. Do not stay around him, or he will nibble you to death. Mr. Suspicion Another variant on the breeds above, this is a future Joe Stalin. He sees what he wants to see, usually the worst, in other people, and imagines that everyone is after him. Mr. Suspicion is, in fact, the least dangerous of the three. Genuinely unbalanced, he is easy to deceive, just as Stalin himself was constantly deceived. Play on his suspicious nature to get him to turn against other people. But if you do become the target of his suspicions, watch out. The Serpent with a Long Memory If hurt or deceived, this man will show no anger on the surface. He will calculate and wait. Then, when he is in a position to turn the tables, he will exact a revenge marked by a cold-blooded shrewdness. Recognize this man by his calculation and cunning in the different areas of his life. He is usually cold and unaffectionate. Be doubly careful of this snake, and if you have somehow injured him, either crush him completely or get him out of your sight. The plain, unassuming, and often unintelligent man. Ah, your ears prick up when you find such a tempting victim. But this man is a lot harder to deceive than you imagine. Falling for a ruse often takes intelligence and imagination, a sense of the possible rewards. The blunt man will not take the bait because he does not recognize it. He is that unaware. The danger with this man is not that he will harm you or seek revenge, but merely that he will waste your time, energy, resources, and even your sanity in trying to deceive him. Have a test ready for a mark, a joke, 
a story? If his reaction is utterly literal, this is the type you are dealing with. Continue at your own risk. Transgression of the Law In the early part of the 13th century, Muhammad, the Shah of Khwarazm, managed after many wars to forge a huge empire extending west to present-day Turkey and south to Afghanistan. The empire's center was the great Asian capital of Samarkand. The Shah had a powerful, well-trained army and could mobilize 200,000 warriors within days. In 1219, Mohammed received an embassy from a new tribal leader to the east, Genghis Khan. The embassy included all sorts of gifts to the great Mohammed, representing the finest goods from Khan's small but growing Mongol empire. Genghis Khan wanted to reopen the Silk Route to Europe and offered to share it with Mohammed, while promising peace between the two empires. Mohammed did not know this upstart from the East, who, it seemed to him, was extremely arrogant to try to talk as an equal to one so clearly his superior. He ignored Khan's offer. Khan tried again. This time, he sent a caravan of a hundred camels filled with the rarest articles he had plundered from China. Before the caravan reached Mohammed, however, Inulchik, the governor of a region bordering on Samarkand, seized it for himself and executed its leaders. Genghis Khan was sure that this was a mistake, that Inulchik had acted without Muhammad's approval. He sent yet another mission to Muhammad, reiterating his offer and asking that the governor be punished. This time, Muhammad himself had one of the ambassadors beheaded and sent the other two back with shaved heads, a horrifying insult in the Mongol code of honor. Khan sent a message to the Shah. You have chosen war. What will happen will happen, and what is to be we know not. Only God knows. Mobilizing his forces, in 1220 he attacked Inulchik's province, where he seized the capital, captured the governor, and ordered him executed by having molten silver poured into his eyes and ears. Over the next year, Khan led a series of guerrilla-like campaigns against the Shah's much larger army. His method was totally novel for the time. His soldiers could move very fast on horseback and had mastered the art of firing with bow and arrow while mounted. The speed and flexibility of his forces allowed him to deceive Mohammed as to his intentions and the directions of his movements. Eventually, he managed first to surround Samarkand, then to seize it. Mohammed fled and a year later died, his vast empire broken and destroyed. Genghis Khan was sole master of Samarkand, the Silk Route, and most of northern Asia. Interpretation. Never assume that the person you are dealing with is weaker or less important than you are. Some men are slow to take offense, which may make you misjudge the thickness of their skin and fail to worry about insulting them. But should you offend their honor and their pride, they will overwhelm you with a violence that seems sudden and extreme given their slowness to anger. If you want to turn people down, it is best to do so politely and respectfully, even if you feel their request is impudent or their offer ridiculous. Never reject them with an insult until you know them better 
you may be dealing with a Genghis Khan. Keys to Power The ability to measure people and to know who you are dealing with is the most important skill of all in gathering and conserving power. Without it, you are blind. Not only will you offend the wrong people, you will choose the wrong people to work on and will think you are flattering people when you are actually insulting them. Before embarking on any move, take the measure of your mark or potential opponent. Otherwise, you will waste time and make mistakes. Study people's weaknesses, the chinks in their armor, their areas of both pride and insecurity. Know their ins and outs before you even decide whether or not to deal with them. Two final words of caution. First, in judging and measuring your opponent, never rely on your instincts. You will make the greatest mistakes of all if you rely on such inexact indicators. Nothing can substitute for gathering concrete knowledge. Study and spy on your opponent for however long it takes. This will pay off in the long run. Second, never trust appearances. Anyone with a serpent's heart can use a show of kindness to cloak it. A person who is blustery on the outside is often really a coward. Learn to see through appearances and their contradictions. Never trust the version that people give of themselves. It is utterly unreliable. <laughs>